Hey there, I'm Amadal Yakbur, and this is See Something, Say Something, the BuzzFeed show where we drink chai, tell stories, and talk about being Muslim in America. So this week, we're going to be talking about something that's a little controversial. We're going to be talking about alcohol, and we're going to figure out what's the role of alcohol in Islamic history. So I've invited a professor on to give me some history and context behind alcohol's role in Islamic law and poetry, which you'd be surprised, even though it's banned, it figures very heavily in the Muslim imagination. Um, But this is not the only episode we're going to be doing. We're going to have some later conversations where we ask people to tell some stories and explain their personal relationship to intoxicants. Um, So keep an eye out for those a little bit later. Um, And just bear in mind that uh, you might disagree with what people say on these episodes, and that's totally okay and totally normal. And it's kind of the point of the show is we want to have these conversations that are difficult, and and maybe you don't feel comfortable talking to people about, um, and uh, because you're going to disagree with them. And that's okay. Najam Haider is an assistant professor at Barnard College, where he teaches courses in Islamic studies and history with a focus on Islamic law. Welcome to the show, Najam. Thanks for having me. So we usually ask people, um, like, what's sort of on their mind this week and uh, what's been going on with them, what place they're at. What are some things you're thinking about this week? Well, I think every week I think about the political situation in this country, um, which kind of scares me. I've been thinking a lot about Syria and trying not to feel despondent about it. Mm -hmm. And then I saw a picture of a bunny riding a dog with a trained snail on its shoulder. (laughs) Um, What? You have to show me this. That was for Easter, and uh, that made me happy. So those three things have been on my mind. Yeah. Uh, It's it's tough to balance the news with, like, just your sanity. I mean, I think it's such a thing that we're all dealing with, um, how to... Um, pay respect to like the violence and war in the world that's happening and also stay sane. Not to be apathetic. And not to be apathetic as well, yeah. I'm not, not, there's also that, uh, the other thing we haven't even talked about the show is that we dropped the mother of all bombs on Afghanistan, which was like the biggest non-nuclear weapon ever dropped by the United States. And we called it a mother, even though mothers tend to give birth, not take life away. Mm. So for the first half, to get some historical context and learn a little bit more about um, some of the history behind uh, the law and alcohol and intoxicants, I think maybe like up top, it would be interesting to hear like a sort of uh, disclaimer about what Islamic law is, because I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what that means. So uh, what, what would be your takeaway about how to explain that? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because I, I do think that before we can talk about alcohol or intoxicants, you have to talk about what the structure of Islamic law is, uh-huh. how it works. And I guess the other disclaimer I would put in there before I even get to that is that there's a difference between the law and society and mm-hmm. practice. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about what I'll tell you about will be what jurists, what lawyers are saying to each other. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't necessarily represent what people are doing on the ground. So there's a disconnect between what people do, practice, and jurists. Now, Islamic law, I think... In the media, generally, when people think of Islamic law, or my students, when I get students, when they think of Islamic law, they think of this this ossified type of law that's Mm -hmm. a thousand years old and it never changes. And it's interesting because that is 
I mean, that's almost opposite to the nature of the law itself. I mean, Islamic law is generally flexible. It's variant. It's changing. Mm-hmm. And in fact, when the British showed up in India and they wanted to impose a legal system and they opposed the Sharia, it wasn't because the Sharia was too, you know, draconian. It was mm-hmm. because the Sharia was too arbitrary, they thought, mm-hmm. too flexible. Every mm-hmm. judge had the ability to do whatever they wanted, and they wanted a codified law. But in fact, Sharia is super flexible. In order to understand how it's flexible, you sort of have to understand that what holds Sharia together is method. It's how you do the law. It's rules. Mm-hmm. And so most of the schools of Islamic law, they agree about rules, even Sunni, even Shia, all of them. Now, there are two types of of laws or two types of of evidence that is used in making the law. The first is what we know to be true um, in in the Islamic context as a Muslim. So the Quran, true. 100% 100% certain. Because it came down from God. It was revealed. That's the, that's the you know, it's got, you have to base your, many people base their belief on that because yes. it feels like the most verifiable thing. And the second thing is the sunnah, which is the example of the prophet, which is not the same as like things that are ascribed to him. It's mm-hmm. what the prophet actually did. Mm-hmm. Now, after you get past those two things, it's all up in the air. So jurists will say, once you get past the Quran and the sunnah, everything is contestable. Mm-hmm. And it is contested except at a certain point where everybody agrees on something, and then it becomes certain. So I think bearing that in mind, when we look at how alcohol has been treated, Mm -hmm. it wasn't something that was certain. It was something that was contested, and then over time it became certain. I mean, that's an interesting also thing. I think uh, certainty is something that a lot of people like to use when applied to Islamic law and like what is correct Islamic practice. Um, but I don't really I, – I've heard this consensus idea, the idea that like if all the scholars uh, mm-hmm. agree, then it's, uh, it's become law. But people's minds change and culture changes. Um, and it seems like it would, be, it would be silly to think if people agreed in 1400 and then people cha- have new data in 2000 and they don't change their mind that you would still rely on that. I mean that's my – just obviously like how I see it. I don't disagree with you and I don't think – I don't think even jurors would disagree with you. But the problem I, – I, well, I'll say two things. The first thing is there's so few things that everybody agrees upon. Yeah. Oh, this is another thing. So, it's like, how, how can you really say everyone agrees on it? So, so alcohol is interesting because it's one of the very, very, I mean, it's like a typical example. It's like the one example that people point to, the jurists point to and say, see, that was disputed and then it became consensus. Uh-huh. But very few things are accepted by consensus. And the second thing is you said, what if all the jurists agree? No one even agrees that it's about jurists. Mm, so, you know, some people will say the consensus has to be Everyone. Every single and ha- person. And how do you figure that out? There might be some some dude in Tajikistan who's yeah. a Muslim who's like, you know what? I don't agree with that. How do you poll people in the year 1400? You, probably, you really couldn't. Yeah. So there is that level of arbitrariness <laughs> that you mentioned. Let's talk about the, this question of alcohol. I think growing up in a Muslim American household, you, le- you get taught in at least an immigrant household. Like in a, I'll say from my own specific experience was that, you know, Muslims don't drink, you know, like they, it's not a part of our tradition. It's not something that we do now. Um, And, you know, like it's so clear. It's one of those clear things. Um, And as you grow older, you look at a lot of the poetry that you've been listening to, especially Pakistani poetry. So much of it is about intoxication and the beloved of the divine and the nasha, you know, all this stuff that is about um, intoxication. Um, and then you you learn about Islamic law. And there's a lot of there's a lot of things that 
aren't a part of the conversation around alcohol. So let's go back to the beginning. Let's think about the historical relationship between um, alcohol and Islam. Like, what was it like in the earliest days? Well, let me begin by saying I completely connect with what you're saying. Because when I was growing up, it was like the two things that I could not imagine doing were pork, Uh um, which you might eat by mistake, and you're like, okay, it was a mistake, and alcohol. Those two things are the big, big things. So when I was in graduate school, I decided to look at this question. It was part of my, my research, and I was surprised by what I found. because So there's, there's a set of Quranic verses that deal with alcohol, um, maybe. Um, and, <laughs> oh, maybe. Okay, we're already in the, arbit- the, the ambiguous place. So the first, the first of those says that, in, that intoxicants are kind of amazing. That's the first verse. And so it's like a sign of God that, you know, you can drink something that puts some sort of nasha on you. Uh-huh. Um, then the second one says that there are some good and there's some bad, but the, the bad outweighs the good. Mm-hmm. And third one says, don't pray when you're drunk for obvious reasons. Yes. You, would, you would slur your speech. And they actually have funny stories where you know, the prophet sees people and they go and they pray and they start like messing up the Quran. And he's like, this is just not acceptable. Right. Um, and then you have a verse that specifically says that khamar, that's the word used, is prohibited. And so I think that Early on, Hamar was seen to be wine that was made of raw grape juice. Mm-hmm. That's what it was. So for you could read that verse as just outlawing red grape wine, if you wanted. Right. But In the most, most literal yeah. translation, right. So most schools of law took that and they did one of two things. They either said that by analogy, if wine is prohibited, then all intoxicants are prohibited. So they did this, This, I mean, it's very Aristotelian. They said, what's the reason that this substance is not allowed? That's intoxication. Can, can I ask you, what does Aristotelian mean? I don't know what that means, really. I mean, no, it means Aristotle, but I don't know enough it about it. It basically him. means if you watch uh, Monty Python, the, the thing about the witch and the goose, uh-huh. um, it's that, just, just look that up, because that is exactly what we're talking about when we talk about syllogism. It's just connecting things together by, by little logical bridges. Two. Logically, if she weighs the same as a duck, she's made of wood. And therefore, a witch! A witch! And so they said that the reason that that, that Khamar was prohibited was intoxication, and therefore all intoxicants are prohibited. Mm-hmm. And others took these, these statements ascribed to the Prophet that said, anything that intoxicates in small quantities... Uh, large quantities is also prohibited in, in, in small quantities and mm-hmm. you know, texts like that. And so they expanded out. They took this one verse and they expanded out from it and said all intoxicants are prohibited. Now, the one exception uh, were the Hanafis. And the Hanafi school of law, which is the Did biggest school of which law. Which I was raised Hanafi. <laughs> most South Asians are. Yeah. Um, the biggest school of law, they took a very different position. And they were based in Iraq, not in, in Arabia. And they said... Okay, so any wine made of raw grape juice is prohibited. And then everything else you can pretty much drink as long as you don't get intoxicated. What? <laughs> I definitely never learned that growing up. So, so for example, Abu Hanifa, the founder of the school, the, yeah. the one who's ascribed the founding of the school, he apparently said, according to one of his students, that you can drink not, again, not red wine, other things like beer, for example. You uh-huh. can drink it as long as you don't get intoxicated. And they asked him, what does it mean to be intoxicated? And he said, you can't tell the difference between the sky and the ground and a man and a woman. 
<laughs> right? So, so pretty messed up. Pretty messed up, right? So that, that was the, the position that, that Abu Hanifa took. So they, and they said that, for example, that beer wasn't really the same thing as wine because it was a food, because uh-huh. it's made out of barley. Oh. So these kinds of questions were raised. And so the Hanafis held out for a while, and they said that, no, only things made of grapes. And then later they expanded that and said, things made of grapes and dates. Mm-hmm. And then only 600 years, took about 500, 600 years, did they come to the conclusion that all intoxicants are prohibited. So for that first 600 years, it was an open question. Um, and so I always think it, it was interesting to me when I studied this because it, it seemed to me that the Hanafis gave in to peer pressure uh-huh. and eventually outlawed all alcohol, uh, which is the opposite of how we think of peer pressure. Right. But this was a case where peer pressure <laughs> works in the other direction. Bunch of straight edge kids, you know, putting some pressure on the Hanafis. Exactly. And then put X's on their hands. <laughs> and then eventually, once it's consensus, once everybody agrees, then the issue becomes closed. And so from 1200 onward, there's very little debate as to whether you could drink alcohol. So can we talk about like what, and this is obviously, I'm sure there are multiple accounts of this and it's it's hard to get a full picture, but what, what's what's happening on the ground for Muslims in those periods? Are are people like what, like I'm assuming, you know, most places, Islam obviously like spread from the uh, Arabian subcontinent to, you know, as, as west as Spain and as east as India. And a lot of those people, I'm sure, drank alcohol. The people who converted, was it... Um, did they really stop drinking alcohol? What was, like, the common person's relationship to it? What was the, like, ruling class? Because it pops up in the culture. Well, if you can answer that question, I will award you a PhD from okay. Columbia University. Okay. I mean, the problem is that we don't have very much uh, data, Okay. Yeah. Um, at least in the early period. But we do know that, like, when Islam expanded, they would encounter new drinks. Okay. And they had to figure out what to do with the drinks. So there's this very funny story. I don't think it's true. About Yemenis sitting around in a circle trying mm-hmm. to figure out if coffee was permissible or not. Interesting. Um, and so they got one guy, they put him in the middle, and they had him take shots of espresso over and over again <laughs> and observed what happened to him uh-huh. and saw if it reached the level of intoxication. And luckily for all of us, they decided that it was different. But, mm-hmm. I mean, I think there's two things to bear in mind here. We don't know what normal people are doing. Right. So what normal people are doing is, is completely unclear to us. Um, what are Sufis doing? Like mystics? Yeah. Um, well, their poetry has a lot to do with drinking, uh-huh. but are they actually drinking or is this metaphorical? And if you ask, like, my parents, they'll be like, oh, metaphor. Same. But Same. I, <laughs> I'm not sure about that. And, you know, elites in particular, like folks who work for the bureaucracy, like, you know, scribes, folks who translated things, um, they clearly were uh, indulging, one could say, um, in, in, in alcohol. Not religious scholars, maybe not so much, but, you know, there's a difference between the bureaucratic imperial culture, Uh like the Mughals and the Abbasids and what they're doing in court and what scholars are doing. And there's a separation between the two. Right. And poets were, but poets were like, if you think about poets are like rock stars. They're going to do everything. Well, let's let's talk about poetry a little bit because I think that's one aspect also. Like, what are some of the the ways that um, intoxication is used as a metaphor in the poetry of, you know, pre-colonial Islamic world. Well, okay, so usually it's used in the context of God, mm-hmm. right? You get lost in God. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Rumi, who, which every 20-year-old boy tries to pick up girls with, um, <laughs> Rumi, um, he constantly refers to God as his beloved. Uh-huh. And so he, he, he makes, it's like they're love poems. And, you know, the comparison is made between, you know, your attitude towards God and being intoxicated in your love with God, losing yourself. Um, so that's there's a type of Sufism that indulges in that kind of um, imagery. 
You also find uh, metaphors of intoxication and, and losing oneself in non-Sufi poetry in the Abbasid period and prior to that. So Abbasid period, you know, 1100s, 1200s, mm-hmm. 1000s. W- was it iconoclastic for them to do that, to say, like, you know, the most sacred thing is like this sort of haram thing? No, but they didn't say it was a haram thing, though. You know, like, the way they saw it is that you you've, you got to such a deep level of love mm-hmm. that you lost yourself. So they weren't saying that, you know, being in love with... God is like getting sloshed. Mm-hmm. What they were saying is that when you fall in love with someone so so intensely mm-hmm. and you lose your senses, the best parallel to that might be um, mm-hmm. the, this sense of loss of reason that you get when, with, with, with alcohol. And sometimes, sometimes I would argue that it was actually metaphor. It was seen as metaphor. Mm-hmm. And bear in mind also that, you know, in, in heaven, according to, you know, many um, Muslim traditions, there's wine. Mm, so the assumption mm-hmm. isn't that the wine itself is intrinsically bad. Mm. It's that wine in this world, in the way that it operates, is is problematic. Mm-hmm. So it's not as if it's a condemnation of the state of drinking wine. Mm-hmm. It's, it's more complicated than that. Um, so how do you feel like that shift in attitude that you and I are talking about, where it's like wine is just a big, the big bad, you know, alcohol mm-hmm. is the big bad. You should never do that. How do you think that came about? All right, well, now you've... I, I know this is beyond your expertise. <laughs> I'm asking you in a way to do the, uh, you know, in a way like your less professional uh, uh, right. voice. Like, well, what do you think has happened there? Well, you know, this cuts against every fiber of an academic. I'm to, sorry. To, to I'm going to make gonna, these positions. I, I'm going to ask you to do that. Um, you know, I, I think... I do. I think that in, in periods of crisis, um, my, my observations anyway, in periods of crisis, and I mean by crisis, I mean colonialism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, people fall back in identity to um, to, to deeper aspects of, mm-hmm. of their own culture and we'll, and, and things that, that cut in contrast mm-hmm. um, to the colonizer. Yeah. And I think that maybe in recent times that, that stigmatizing, the over-stigmatizing of alcohol might be an attempt to sort of reinforce identity. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we are Muslim and we're not right. this, we're not that group of people. Right. Um, and some even argue that in the in early Islam, one of the reasons there's there's a terrible book which I'm not going to name, um, <laughs> where, where the the academic makes that argument that you know Islamic rules for alcohol were made to separate Muslims from Christians. Mm, interesting. Um, which I don't, don't buy. Doesn't seem. <laughs> yeah, I don't buy that. But so th- I think there are certain things that strike you know that that strike, set Muslims apart. And so I, I think perhaps uh, a, a growing emphasis on on alcohol might be because it is one of the things, as you mentioned. That when you grow up, you think, oh, this is what separates me out yes. from society. Yes. The other thing we want, I wanted to ask you about, um, which is sort of like I feel like the two that are often um, put side by side as like the like contentious issues is, is marijuana. Because, you know, obviously Hummer is not weed. Mm-hmm. Um, but did, how did jurists deal with issues like that? Well, issues with, with weed specifically. Well, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know about the weed. I know bunge. They they used to deal with which is a weed like okay um, derivative okay um, and I, I get the same folks who felt that that all intoxicants were prohibited would prohibit that substance also and mm-hmm. so they would extend that to weed so I mean I I think that the, the, these things are connected together in the same way that uh, cocaine or all the or not other drugs might be connected together so um, I don't know very many I can't think of a single jurist who would say that marijuana is is acceptable interesting. Um, even though, okay, this is just me talking, but even though when I objectively look at it, um, it seems like a more compelling case can be made um, for the legality of marijuana than for, for example, 
uh, vodka, mm-hmm. made of potatoes. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I think that it's interesting that that, that that conversation rarely seems to happen. And I'm, I know that jurors have ruled against marijuana as acceptable, but I find very few jurors who would say, oh, yeah, well, that, that's all right. Mm. I, I hear the term, I will, when I studied uh, like Islamic law in Sunday school, I heard the term makru mm-hmm. uh, applied to it. Could you explain that term? So uh, depending on which law school you belong to, there's a there's types uh-huh. of of legal rulings from acceptable to commendable mm-hmm. to prohibited, and makru sort of is on the edge of prohibited. I mean, it's literally translated as reprehensible. Mm-hmm. So it's one of those things where you could do the reprehensible thing; you're mm-hmm. perfectly free to do it, mm-hmm. but it's it's looked upon poorly by God. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's one of those things where you know you're hanging out with your parents, and your parents are like, you can do that if you want, but mm-hmm. you'll disappoint me significantly. And so it's sort of God <laughs> saying, you can do that, but just you know, bear in mind that I find it reprehensible. It's interesting though, because I feel like. Even though what you just said, I, what you just said is actually not what I expected uh, uh, with regards to, to marijuana, which is that I feel like culturally my experience has been people are way more comfortable with weed than they are with um, alcohol because alcohol is like so explicitly prohibited. And weed also seems to, at least in South Asian culture, have some sort of like relationship to um, spirituality or something. Well, I think that, uh, again, this is the difference between practice and jurists. Mm-hmm. So jurists might be more more willing to say outright that mm-hmm. something is not prohibited. But I, I agree with you in the sense that I think more Muslims that I know, yeah. uh, both in the United States and in the Pakistani context, yeah. are more are comfortable smoking weed, uh-huh. more comfortable than they would be drinking alcohol. So for the last segment, um, you're an expert, so I wanted to make sure that our audience also had a chance to ask you some questions. So I crowdsourced a few questions. Um, I'm going to ask them to you now. The first one is somebody just asked, is it possible to be a Muslim who drinks? Are you still Muslim if you drink? I'm going to take a, an academic position, a jurist yeah. position here. Yeah. Um, jurists would, I think most jurists would, would tell you that um, there's a difference between drinking and saying it's acceptable Islamically, right, and drinking and saying, "I know what I'm doing is wrong, mm-hmm. but I'm doing it." Uh, I think the problem arises when people say, "Well, I'm drinking, and it's Islamically okay," mm-hmm. because that just is, um, in terms of of law, just it's wrong mm-hmm. in the sense of like that's just not true. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's where uh, jurists would get more upset. They would right. say, "Now you're saying that something is permissible that is not permitted." I uh, took some classes with Sherman Jackson, who is a professor of Islamic law at California. So he told me this really interesting story, which comes from the Hadith. It comes from Bukhari. I looked it up because I wasn't sure about this companion, New Ayman, who is a drinker. And the companions berate him and they tell him, you know, he shouldn't be drinking. And the prophet comes back at the companions and says, no, actually stop insulting him. He's a Muslim just like you are. The drinking doesn't stop him from being a Muslim. And I always found that to be really interesting because it's very different from, like, the attitude of this question is sort of like what I'm used to is, like, if you drink, you're not Muslim. Well, yeah, and and I think it feeds into what, what I was trying to say in, you know, in not as uh, eloquent a way. Um, so I'm just called you eloquent. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> but in the sense of like, you know, the, the difference is that this person that the companion is talking about, he's drinking. Yeah. But 
that doesn't mean anything. I mean, it's in the sense of like he's doing something that God will take care of. I mean, it's between him and God. Yeah. And I would never, in response to that question, I would never be the person to say this person is a Muslim or not a Muslim. Right. Because, again, within Islam itself, the idea is that you're not the one who's meant to judge. And right. I think that's what you're, the story you told from Sherman Jackson is is saying the same kind of thing. Right. It, it totally is. That totally was my takeaway from it. And I, I found it very useful to think about how to like deal with these things that are so complicated in American context. Everyone's figuring it out. They have their own personal relationship to the religion, to God, and it's okay to be in the like middle place. Absolutely. One last quick question. This person wanted to know about the this like sort of thing that happens um, in America, which is the idea of um, eating things where alcohol has been cooked off. It's been cooked in it. <laughs> has there been any discussion by jurists about this uh, this idea of like alcohol content in things that are um, where it may not long may, may no longer be intoxicating? I mean, okay, so now you've hit upon a grow, you know, a, a continuing controversy between me and my wife. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh God! Um, but I think that in most cases, jurists say that if it's prepared with alcohol. Uh-huh. Um, even if the alcohol is probably evaporating away, that you can't have that. Okay. But I'll be. But so for me personally, mm-hmm. I, I take a different position on that. This is my position, which is that the alcohol is evaporating away. So for me, it seems like it would be okay. Um, but that's a that's an open controversy. I mean, I think that's something we struggle with, in, especially in the United States. We struggle yeah, with a lot. It's a new problem. Yeah. I like tiramisu. I, mean, I want to eat tiramisu. Um, or you know, every now and then, I uh, my wife will ask a question about the preparation of a dessert at a restaurant, and I'll just look at her. I'll be like, "Why are you asking that question? If you didn't. We could just totally eat it." Yeah. So I mean, that's another issue we haven't even touched upon, which is ignorance. Because yeah. ignorance allows you to do things mm. that you couldn't otherwise do. Right. It's not so much about the thing being inherently, like you said, it's not inherently bad. It's about the choice to do it and these all these other things about intoxication, whether the good outweighs the bad and all that other stuff. But if you didn't intend to do it, um, that's how I also was raised. Like the intention is the most important part. You'd have to eat a lot of tiramisu to get drunk. <laughs> I'm pretty convinced of that. Maybe we need to get, like, one person into a center of a room in Yemen and have them eat a bunch of tiramisu. I would pay to watch that. And see how much they need to, to eat to get drunk. Well, uh, Najim, I learned a lot. Thank you so much for being on the show. Um, where can people like read some of your writing about this? Or do you have any suggestions of other things people can read on um, this topic? Uh, you, I don't have any suggestions. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can suggest academic stuff. But I mean, I think that there's a real need for having a, a way to, to connect Islamic law and issues like this and at least conveying them to, to Muslims. Um, who have these questions and and have very few places where they can go for answers. So thanks for having me because it it was really nice to be able to to explain some of these things in in ways that aren't just limited to my five readers in Uh academia and the 20 kids I teach. Well, I think there was a lot of useful stuff there. You know, I think it's interesting just to think about how just ambiguous so much of Islamic law is and how much of it is about your, like, how your personal relationship with it, you Mm -hmm. know? Um, that's been something that I've like really grown to appreciate about 
like a lot of scholars in academia have helped me give give like like Sherman Jackson have given me the, those tools to understand how to um, you know like navigate a complicated um, the complication of like being in this culture where it's a, it's so much a part of people's lives um, and learning that it's also been a part of Muslim history and we've dealt with it in different ways and we have to like think about ways to do it in this context as well. And it's an ongoing conversation. And it's a conversation. It's totally a conversation. The rules are not so cut and dry. You know. Thank you so much for being on. Are you sure you don't, you don't have anything you want to plug? Do you have a book or a Twitter or something? I'm not going to plug anything. Um, but thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for being on. This episode was produced by Eleanor Kagan, Megan Dietry, and Meg Kramer. Additional production support from Tabir Akhtar, Julia Ferlin, and Nina Patak. Our music is by The Kaminas. Find them at kaminas.bandcamp.com. You can find me on Twitter at radbrowndads. And I have a Tumblr also called radbrowndads. You can find my writing at buzzfeed.com, the website. Sign up for the newsletter at buzzfeed.com slash see something, say something slash newsletter. Email us at say something at buzzfeed.com or check out our videos on our Facebook page. Um, or follow us on Twitter at see something. And if you like the show, please rate it on iTunes. I'm Amadal Yakber. Thank you for listening.